You know, a couple weeks ago, as I started preparing for this message, I had someone in my life that I was thinking about, and I was hoping that they would listen to what I had to say today and really learn from it. But then Jesus started preaching to me. He said, Steve, when it comes to disagreement, the thing that you think about or are accusing that person of, it's the same thing you're guilty of yourself. So this week, I'm learning the better way to disagree right alongside you. Now, we know that we disagree. As you watch and listen on the other side of this camera, I know for sure that we, you and me, disagree on different things. And that's okay. We don't have to, to agree on everything. And this is evident in scripture for, for sure. Paul and Barnabas disagreed. Paul and Peter, Jesus and his own disciples at different points. Disagreement is, is normal. There are certain things, ideals, values that I hold that are different from what you hold. In, in Luke 9, we read about Jesus' disciples going into a Samaritan village and not being welcomed. And when James and John experienced this, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? They wanted to destroy the people who disagreed with their way. And Jesus was not pleased. We actually don't read exactly what Jesus said to his disciples after they asked if they should destroy these people. All we read is that Jesus rebuked them, which is the exact same word used for how Jesus spoke to demons. To be fair, I may or may not have wanted to ask Jesus the same thing when I came across someone I disagreed with. Like, Lord, if, if you want to rain down some fire on that person right now, that, that'd be great. What about you? Have you ever felt that? T take, for instance, these words that I'm about to say that seem to conflict with one another. And I, and I want to ask you to make a quick observation of what happens in your heart, in your soul, and, and in your mind over the next minute or so as I say these words. Conservative. Liberal. Same-sex marriage. Traditional marriage. Capitalism. Socialism. Black lives matter, blue lives matter. Pro-life, pro-choice. And perhaps the most polarizing of all, pineapple on a pizza, pineapple nowhere near a pizza. If you're a pineapple on pizza person, let us know in the chat so that, so that we can shame you because obviously pineapple belongs nowhere Nowhere near a pizza. Okay, take a deep breath. Because I'm guessing that just as I mentioned those words, you felt a range of emotion. Everything from, from joy to anger, confidence to insecurity, love to disdain. The reality is, there are people looking at me right now people who attend this church, who love Jesus, 
who have a different view than you. And I think we can all admit that things are extremely polarized right now. We have an election coming up, uh, political and racial tensions are higher than I've ever seen them, and civil discourse does not seem to be very prevalent. I mean, even mentioning the words that I said a moment ago, as soon as I stated a phrase or term or, or, or group that aligned with you, it made you feel closer to me. But when I said a word or phrase that you oppose, the association caused a greater distance between us, even though I never said what I aligned with and what I didn't align with. Now, what's interesting is that there was one thing in common with all those words I said earlier that caused you to feel joy, security, comfort, justification, or peace. The words you thought positively about all had one thing in common. You. Your preference, your convictions, your beliefs. And the same is true for me. Writer David Foster Wallace explains, there is no experience you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. We are each lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms. And in our individual stories, we are always the hero, never the villain. Always Dorothy, never the, the Wicked Witch of the West. Always Iron Man, never Thanos. Always Peter, Paul, and John, never the Pharisees, Sadducees, or Roman soldiers. And when we understand ourselves as the hero of the story, we consequently equate ourselves with good. And if, if I'm good, if my beliefs and my convictions are correct and right, then if you oppose me, you become evil. And, and what do we tend to do to that which we view as evil? We don't give it any credibility. We don't give it any time or, or attention. And we can go as far as disregarding the humanity of the source of what we view as evil. They become it, and it becomes our enemy. And whenever we have an enemy, we show up ready to fight. But I believe, in the midst of our, our disagreements, there is a better way. Here's what Jesus had to say about this. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So turn your Bible or Bible apps to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The, the law that Jesus is referencing here in his sermon is Leviticus 19.18 that says to not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your own people, but to love your neighbor as yourself. Later, Jesus would redefine neighbor in the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of us know that story um, because this law explicitly, the Leviticus 19 law, explicitly commands the Jewish people to love their own people, the people who are just like them. But what's interesting is that nowhere does Levitical law direct the Jewish people to hate their enemy? That, that's not written anyway, anywhere in Jewish scripture. What we do know is that Israel was living under Roman rule at that time, and it seems like some of the teachers had twisted around the text of the Old Covenant to say something it never said. It's like they were adding to scripture to advance their nationalism and, and patriotic duty. Love us, hate them. 
Love your neighbor, love your own people, hate your enemy. And Jesus is like, no, that's not it at all. Look at verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. As part of the kingdom of God, if we don't distinguish between us and them, we, we do not distinguish between us and them. All people, whether they, they look like you, think like you, act like you, or not, deserve and are granted our love, mercy, compassion, care, devotion, which is right in line with the character of God. Jesus continues, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. How are you any different? If the only people you love, which, real quick, the, ter the term love can be so subjective, but let's just follow what Paul says about Jesus in his letter to the church in Philippi to help, help us consider Christ-like love. Paul, Paul says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. That's a good definition, or at least starting point, for love. So, so Jesus says, if the only people you love, if the only people you look to advantage, push forward, serve, are the people that think like you, look like you, vote like you, agree with you, how are you any different from those who don't know God? I, I live in downtown Livermore, and every time I walk to, to First Street from my house, I, I pass a homeless gentleman who's always at the gas station on the way. The first few, time, few times I, I walked past him, I confess to you, uh, I did my best to ignore him. Uh, he always asks if I have a cigarette or a lighter, and, and I've always thought that the, the meeting or meal that I was walking to was more important than interacting with this guy. Well, eventually Jesus got, Jesus got my attention, and, and what he said about the least of these kept rattling around in my brain and in my heart. So the next time I walked by, I got a chance to have a long conversation and even help the, the guy out a little bit. And at one point... In our conversation, he said, hey, what do you do for work? And, and when I told him what I did, he said, then why are you always rushing to get by me? Ugh. You know, the truth is that I rushed by because I didn't think we were going to have meaningful conversation. The truth is that I thought he was just going to ask me for money over and over and over again. The truth is, I've chatted with a bunch of folks from our homeless community, and I thought I knew exactly how that conversation would go, and I didn't want to take the time to have it. And that day, he found out that I called myself a Christian, but had not acted like I followed Jesus, all because I assumed certain things about him. And that's something we all do. We all make these snap judgments about other people. As Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen explain in their book, Thanks for the Feedback, 
We have to remember that our raw observations are not always objective. We first interpret or filter what we see based on our own past experiences, our, our values, our assumptions, and our uh, implicit rules about the world. We shape our own truths on our own personal experiences and assumptions. You know, take, take, for instance, uh, the, the assumptions that are made in, in the midst of the tension around this upcoming election. With, with everything that's in the news from all the different news sources and, and, and everywhere else, assumptions are made. Like when some folks hear someone say, I'm voting for Joe Biden. That's the data. That's the truth. They're saying, this is who I'm voting for. But the story some people hear about whoever says those words is, I'm pro-late-term abortion. Or instead of hearing, I'm voting for Donald Trump, because of assumptions, what some folks hear from whoever makes that statement about who they're voting for, they hear, I align with white supremacy. So there's a difference between data and story. The data is who I'm voting for. The story is what we assume about people when they identify who they're voting for. It doesn't mean those things are true about the people who say who they're voting for, but we attribute truth to our personal interpretations all the time. The process of moving from data to interpretation happens in the blink of an eye and is largely unconscious. Don't miss that. It happens so quick and we don't even recognize it. Artificial intelligence expert Robert Shank observes, computers are organized around managing and accessing data. Human intelligence is organized around stories. We take in selective data and make immediate interpretations resulting in instant judgment-laced labels. Now the fact that human intelligence is organized around stories is so cool to me, so cool to me. It, it makes us so complex and involved and connected. It's such a gift, but it can also be a curse because we all can make faulty assumptions based on faulty data. Like, when we're out at dinner and there's some kids nearby and, and they're loud and, and they start interrupting our, our, our meal, some of us will think, those parents are bad parents. I mean, never mind the fact that my kid is over here trying to eat a crayon. Those are bad parents because their kid is really obnoxious right now. But bad parenting is not the data. It's the story we've crafted about what we see. When I see what I define as bad parenting, I am assuming something about those parents that I don't assume about me as a parent when I do the exact same things they do or don't do. Why? Because I know my story, but I don't know their story. And when I don't know, I make assumptions. And we all have crafted story, stories, consciously or not, about the people we disagree with. Like when our production lead, Stephen Botts, says that Lou Malnati's is the best pizza in Chicago, I immediately think that he is ignorant. And they probably put pineapple on their pizza. 
Giordano's is obviously the best pizza in Chicago and you are ignorant, like Bots is ignorant. He's standing over here and I'm trying not to look at him. Like Bots is ig ignorant if you think any differently. There's a lot of pizza talk today, but, but that's the story I've crafted about you. Uh, and here's, here's what happens. Here's what happens when we craft these stories. It leads us toward othering. They act like this because they have that skin color or they are from that place or they were brought up that way. We make things very us, them, and marginalize people who aren't like us because of the stories we're told and the stories we form. We see something like what we deem as bad parenting and wonder what kind of person would raise their kids that way instead of wondering what is going on in their family that's led to what I'm seeing? I mean, maybe they wanted to get out of the house with their three kids and, and just needed a change of scenery and, and their kids are just being kids and the parents have decided that it's not worth ruining the whole evening by getting angry at their kids. But this doesn't just happen out at a restaurant. This happens with beliefs and politics and all the issues that we disagree about. We wonder, what, what, what kind of person would think that way? Think about that question. What kind of person would think that way? That is, that is such a shallow approach. Instead of the more difficult line of thinking, where we begin to wonder what has helped shape or happened to them in their life that led to their belief or thought process. It's the difference between choosing to otherize or choosing to em empathize. In our disagreements, are we choosing to otherize or empathize? You know, the way toward empathy is what Jesus says next. And just so we're clear, empathy doesn't mean you have to agree, but it does mean that you're able to understand. It means you can sit at the table and, and work to put yourself in their story. And look what Jesus says next, something, something that it's so confusing and, and seemingly impossible. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, the Greek word for perfect is teleos, and it means complete, mature, and full-grown. I love how Eugene Peterson translates verse 48 in the message. In a word... What I'm saying is, grow up. You are kingdom subjects now, live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. That'd be a good one to write down. You wanna to learn to empathize. Okay, Jesus says, here's how. Grow up, reach maturity. Be full grown in Christian character. See in others what God sees in you. And I love how, how Eugene said God created identity. Not my own identity, not myself. God created identity. Because I will argue that as part of the kingdom of God, the greatest enemy to me is not the person who opposes what I think or believe or disagrees with me. The greatest enemy is something within me, my ego, my pride, myself. 
So, how do you get to the mature, full place where, where you can serve and love and have mercy and compassion for those who don't agree with you? The better way to disagree is to minimize me. When you or I disagree with someone, it would be so healthy for us to take a moment and assess why we disagree. What am I arguing for? Or better yet, who am I arguing for? Because the moment I've begun to argue for my benefit, I have missed the teaching of Jesus. As soon as I strive for my comfort, my security, and my safety, all anti-gospel concepts, I have prioritized myself and minimized someone else. Let me say that again. As soon as I prioritize my comfort, my security, and my safety, I have prioritized myself and minimized someone else. Now, if we take a look at the early church, we see that the first generation of Christians refused to leverage privilege or power for their own benefit. It was always for the benefit of others, which this, this whole concept of, of putting others first, if, if you really think about it, it's a dangerous and revolutionary idea. And if we don't wrestle with this, we'll miss it. Because the reality is, when we are hurt, we want to hurt back. When we're put down, we want to put down our opponent. This is, this is the normal response for our ego. It's the natural defense mechanism. The ego thinks that, that I am the only thing that matters. It prioritizes self. But when we allow Jesus to transform us, we shift from desiring the upper hand or chasing after authority and being right to vulnerability, empathy, and unity, even when we disagree. This week, as you recognize those who you disagree with, spend some time in deep, reflective thought. Look thoroughly at what caused the disagreement and see the humanity of the person or people you disagree with. When we do this, it tends to weaken our individualism and narcissism. And when we are liberated from those things, the things that cause us to view ourselves as the only thing that matters or that our rights and dignity have to be defended before other people's rights and dignity. When we release that, we begin to live in a way that looks a lot more like Jesus. Now, does this mean that we don't disagree? No. We already know that disagreement is, is inevitable. But why we disagree, which we just talked about, and then how we disagree is so important. You see, when we're, when we're in the midst of disagreement or debate, there are more options than being a jerk or being a pushover. I think we've all seen the jerks when it comes to, to disagreement. As, as Pastor Eugene Cho wrote, disagreeing with someone's politics, views, religion, and ideology is never permission to harass or bully that person. And certainly, it's never okay to threaten their well-being. Don't do it. And don't let people you know do it. In other words, don't be a jerk for Jesus. Amen? If you agree with this, let us know in the chat. And I was talking to a buddy the other day who has stopped going to church and distanced himself from Christianity for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons includes the misalignment he's seen between the Jesus he read about as a, as a teenager 
and the way followers of Jesus, including his parents, are representing themselves during this highly politicized and polarized time. He said, Steve, it's, it's weird that they thought we were going to turn out to be terrible people because of all the video games we used to play. And as soon as they go on Facebook or Twitter, they become what they feared we'd become. Take an inventory of how and what you are communicating and how it is perceived around the dinner table, on your Zoom calls or conversations at work or on social media. And don't be a jerk. If your values aren't received or acknowledged or agreed with, it does not give any of us permission to be anything but loving. Now, time and time again, Jesus showed restraint and love to those who didn't deserve it. It had to have been so exhausting. So I think Jesus would agree. Don't be a jerk. It's not going to work. You know, it must be why, why Jesus frequently got away to pray and spend time with the Father. Anytime we're struggling to show restraint or, or love, let's, let's also pause to ask the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts and actions. Now, real quick, to close this thought, I wanted to be very careful as I talked about restraint and love to not just equate that with civility and, and kindness for the sake of civility and kindness. I mean, those are great things, but the gospel isn't about being nice. It's about justice, truth, empathy, service, surrender, reconciliation, and redemption. Civility and kindness can be tools that we use to get to the point where we're able to be the church Jesus calls us to be, but the goal isn't just to be nice to each other. Being kind and civil can be the means to the end, but kindness and civility is not the end. Which is why I also think it's important to note that Jesus wasn't a pushover either. He had zero patience for a certain type of person, specifically prideful and greedy people who took advantage of others. We see this when he cleansed the temple of merchants and money changers. Beyond that, he was infuriated by religious hypocrites, like when he called them snakes, a brood of vipers. Jesus stood against those who leveraged power and authority for their own benefit. He stood for the oppressed and those in need. Like, like, like the wisdom he, he knew, and, and we read in Proverbs, Proverbs, excuse me, Proverbs 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly defend the rights of the poor and needy. You see, in those moments where Jesus stood for something, it wasn't for him or his rights. Remember, he made himself nothing. He advocated for others, for their rights, for their benefit. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a pushover. Be an advocate. Now, I love that word advocate so much because along with what it calls us to, it also reminds me of what Jesus does on our behalf. He empathizes with us. He advocates for us. In Hebrews, we read that Jesus is the advocate to the Father for us sinners, for sinners who disregard his law, the greedy, the arrogant, the self-indulged, self-focused, self-righteous. He advocates for us. Not only that, but Jesus pushes forward his mission and purpose for the world through us, and not by power or might or force or conquest. And this confused the disciples so much when Jesus was showing them the better way. I mean, he was obviously at odds with the powers and principalities of this world. So as God, why didn't he just take over? 
When Jesus told his disciples that he will build his church and the gates of Hades would not overcome it, and if that's the case, then even Rome, with all of its imperial power, could not stop them, then the disciples had to be ready for something huge. So why would he allow himself to be, bru- to be beaten and crucified? Why did he choose to lose? I mean, death doesn't look like victory, does it? There was no struggle for power, no fighting for their rights. The disciples had to have wondered, Jesus, how is any of this going to be possible if you're arrested and killed? And Jesus, through his actions, communicated that his father's purpose was more important than his rights. The question from Jesus for his disciples became, will you follow me? Will you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me? 2,000 years later, Jesus is asking us the same question. What matters more, his purpose or my rights? Will we follow him? Will we deny ourselves? Will I minimize me even when I disagree with those around me? You see, when we, when we opt for the systems and influences and sides of this world, the church begins to look a lot like the world. But if we follow Jesus, we are subjects of his kingdom, an inverted kingdom from the kingdoms around us. It is counterculture, so let's live like it. Live out our God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward everyone the way God lives toward us. Anytime you find yourself ready to disagree, ask, who is this for? Am, Am I being a jerk? Am I being a pushover? Or am I being an advocate? Does my opinion prioritize me and the people who are like me, or does it minimize me, my comfort, and my preferences? Does it align with the values of God's kingdom? Am I walking toward the better way? Father God, as our nation and even social circles face such polarization and tension right now, God, I ask that we represent you by minimizing me. God, through humility, empathy, grace, mercy, compassion. Use us to be your church as as you called the, the early disciples to be the church. And God, we know that even though we're not striving for power or authority or or defending our rights, God, that not even the gates of Hades could stop your church. Not, Not any imperial power, nothing can stop the movement of Jesus. So Father, in our disagreements, in our moments of debate, let us reflect you in all things. Help us to not be a jerk. Help us to stand up for what you call us to stand for, to advocate for those who need us to speak on their behalf. 
Father God, we love you so much. We're so grateful that you allow us to partner with you in advancing your gospel, your good news to all nations. Father, we pray this in the mighty and matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ, who made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant for us. Amen.